the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to share a conversation I had with Joel Rosenberg, his latest Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. We'll begin that conversation about halfway, a quarter of the way through this hour, straddle into the next hour. We'll also take a look at a new um, study that indicates that only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview calling for a spiritual awakening in pulpits across the country, that and more throughout today's program. But first, to look at some of the day's headlines. With full control of the beleaguered port city of Mariupol in hand, Russian forces kept up their assault today on eastern Ukraine, now the focus of a conflict that bears the hallmarks of a grim war of attrition. Well, images posted online depicted wounded Ukrainian servicemen taking on, uh, taken rather on stretchers from the vast steelworks plant they had been holed up in in Mariupol to buses that evacuated them to a hospital in Russian-controlled territories. The plant was the uh, soldiers' last uh, bastion in the strategic city, whose capture gives Russia a badly needed victory and a bastion on the Sea of Azov. Well, overnight, 264 Ukrainian defenders, including more than 50 who were seriously wounded, were evacuated from Azovstal. Under Russian military escort, more than 200 others were transported through a humanitarian corridor, a town uh, controlled by pro-Russian separatists. Well, much remains pretty unclear about the evacuation deal. It appears to have been negotiated in secret under the auspices of the International Red Cross and the uh, United Nations and was first announced on Monday by the Russian Defense Ministry. On Tuesday, Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister um, Iryana uh, said that the severely wounded servicemen would be exchanged for Russian prisoners of war after their conditions stabilize. We are working on the next stages of the humanitarian operation, she added. Also unknown is how many fighters remain inside that plant, with commanders now under orders from the Army's high command to save the lives of their personnel instead of pressing on with their defense. Ukraine's military said in a statement earlier today that efforts were ongoing to save the remaining fighters, lauding them as heroes of our time who would be mentioned forever in Ukrainian history. Meanwhile, U.S. authorities on Monday announced the discovery of a massive tunnel stretching under the U.S.-Mexico border. It was likely used to transport drugs undetected. The over 1,700-foot fully operational tunnel runs from Tijuana uh, to an industrial warehouse in San Diego. Yes, on this side of the border. Authorities said it contains a sophisticated structural system. It was likely used to smuggle heroin, methamphetamine, and fentanyl into the U.S. It's estimated to be about 1,744 feet long, 61 feet deep, um, with a diameter of about four feet at its widest point. That's according to U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California. It has reinforced walls, a rail system, and electricity for ventilation. U.S. authorities didn't say how long the tunnel has been operating, but announced $25 million worth of drugs were seized from the tunnel and its operatives 
uh, over the weekend. The drugs include 1,762 pounds of cocaine, cocaine rather, 165 pounds of meth, and 3.5 pounds of heroin. Six Southern California residents were arrested and charged with conspiring to distribute cocaine. Standing in his kitchen one morning in Washington, D.C. and drinking a glass of, um, of water, Ben Bernanke, wearing a gray suit, a button-down shirt, no tie, and a pair of Brooks running sneakers, um, says it looks like the Federal Reserve, well, they may not be um, moving in the right direction. And he predicts stagflation. The coronavirus pandemic, its economic impact, the overnight pullback in employment, coupled with an infusion of money not seen in history and now seemingly runaway inflation, have led Mr. Bernanke thinking and writing. He's been in a self-imposed quarantine of sorts, writing a book, 21st Century Monetary Policy, the Federal Reserve from the Great Inflation to COVID-19, which will be published Today, Mr. Bernanke describes the book as academic, but at this particular moment, it may be a uniquely practical book as the public tries to better understand the powers of the Federal Reserve and Congress to juice or slow our economy with a supply chain crunch and sky high demand. The former chairman's book itself is an example of the cross currents playing out in our country. Given supply chain disruptions, this book took six months to go from final manuscript to appearing on the store shelves, he said. Mr. Bernanke wrote the book when it became evident that I was not going to be traveling uh, a lot and that uh, we were home for a while with the early days of the pandemic provides a history of the Federal Reserve. His own graduate thesis was on the crash of 1929 and its aftermath which he says provided valuable lessons on how he responded to the recession in 2008. His focus this time, however, is not the 2000, not on 2008, but on the 1970s, which he suggests is the closest analog to what what's happening in today's economy and what could happen next. He is hopeful that Jay Powell and the current Federal Reserve, who is the current Federal Reserve chairman, can help tame inflation without having to put in place the extreme measures that the former Fed chair, Paul Volcker, did in the 1970s or send the economy into recession. But he also suggests it's possible the nation could be in for a period of stagflation, a word that Mr. Bernanke said was invented in the 1970s. Even under the benign scenario, we should have a slowing economy, he said, and inflation still too high but coming down so there should be a period in the next year or two where growth is slow unemployment is at least a little bit and uh, inflation is still high he predicted so you could call that stagflation well again the book is out today opening arguments uh, began uh, presenting uh, both the government and Michael Sussman's defense team Tuesday morning in federal court as the first full day of the first trial out of the special counsel John Durham's years-long investigation into the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. The government uh, presented at its arguments first. That started at 9 a.m. local time at the U.S. District Court in the District of Columbia. Federal prosecutors uh, Deborah Britton-Shaw is set to uh, deliver the opening argument for the government which uh, lasted about 20 minutes. Representing the government are Shaw and federal prosecutors Andrew DeFilippis, Michael Kyleti, and Jonathan Edgar Alger VI, or rather the fourth. Representing Sussman are defense attorneys Sean Berkowitz, Michael Bosworth, Catherine Yao, and Natalie Hardwick-Rao. Sussman is charged with making a false statement to the FBI and has pleaded not guilty. We will follow the trial and report. 
The Pentagon Tuesday showcased declassified photos and videos of UFOs to Congress, including a flying object without a specific explanation, as lawmakers pressed military officials on the mysterious sightings. In one brief and shaky video, a small object appeared to zip past a military pilot in a separate video and a similar photo taken at a different time. Glowing triangles are seen in the night sky. The visuals were shown during testimony from Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence Scott Bray and Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security Ronald Moultrie. Uh, Bray, as he uh, presented the images and videos, said the video and photo of the glowing triangle remained unresolved for some time, but was eventually identified as unmanned aerial vehicles. But he said the military does not know what the object in the first video could be. I do not have an explanation for what this specific object is, Bray said, in the exchange with the Intelligence Committee Chairman Representative Adam Schiff. Out of California, Bray continued to emphasize that many UAP reports have a limited amount of high quality data and reporting, which hampers the ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature and intent of these unidentified uh, flying. And I can't remember what the P stands for, but it's the, the new way of describing uh, these objects. Bray also said Tuesday that there have been um, at least 11 near misses between U.S. military aircraft and UAP. He also said the U.S. military hasn't tried to communicate with UAP, including the unexplained object in the video shown earlier in the hearing, which may or may not be in controlled flight. The presentation happened in a House counterterrorism, counterintelligence and counterproliferation subcommittee t- meeting Tuesday. It was the first congressional UFO. Uh, <laughs> UFO hearing in a generation. Lawmakers are warning that although there's still a stigma associated with UFOs, which the government officially calls unidentified aerial phenomena, that's the name, UAP, they are a serious national security threat. Considering a mystery phenomenon. Well, who's in charge? Elon Musk torched President Biden with a slam about who the real president is. And as I mentioned, the Durham-Sussman trial opened with arguments presented by both the government and Michael Sussman's defense team. Calling it a winning issue, House Republicans plan to make protecting women's sports a priority if they retake the majority. Absolutely brutal for Democrats, a draft of a new congressional districting map for the state of New York appears to give Republicans a big boost. Pointing fingers, Liz Cheney blames GOP leaders for enabling white supremacists, uh, white racism, rather, days after Buffalo shooters attack. NBC, ABC and more discuss the effect Roe will have on the midterm, saying it hasn't made a difference in the past, predicting it won't at present. And choosing woke terminology, Michelle Obama's word choice in a social media abortion post raised questions. How do you actually pronounce the word woman replacing the E with an X? You want to remove uh, any um, men from the word. So Wimex, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. Nonetheless, big question in the woke terminology saying he might as well run MSNBC host and former aide to Kamala Harris. Simone Sanders offered a passive endorsement to reelect President Biden in 2024. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll return to some of the headline news and coming up later this hour, Joel Rosenberg, enemies and allies, his latest. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the day's news and looking forward to a conversation with Joel Rosenberg. 
Well, finishing the job, Finland's ambassador reveals the warning given to Russia before Ukraine's invasion. He says the Russians uh, should not be surprised that his country now wants to join NATO after Russia invaded Ukraine. He says he personally warned them in January this would happen if Russian troops crossed into Ukraine. Last November, 20 percent of all Finns wanted to join NATO. Now, nearly 80 percent want to join, according to recent polls. A dramatic shift in public sentiment after decades of neutrality. After World War II, fully operational border officials discovered a massive drug tunnel connecting Tijuana and San Diego. And Sweden is now joining Finland in a bid to join NATO. Turkey does not support the additions to NATO. From that story, despite repeated threats from Russia, Finland is poised to join the U.S.-led NATO military alliance. The historic move set to be mirrored by Sweden will effectively double the length of NATO's land border with Russia. Russia and Putin in particular has long considered NATO a threat. The Kremlin has defended its war in Ukraine partly as a means of pushing the Western alliance back further from its borders, a tactic which, given Finland and Sweden's accession bids, appears to have backfired spectacularly. The New York uh, redistricting map spells trouble for Democrats. A draft of the new congressional districting map for the state of New York appears to give Republicans a pretty big boost compared to the lines Democratic lawmakers had originally drawn. The Democrats' plan was uh, scrapped and redistricting places in the hands of a court-appointed special master after a January ruling that the initial map was the result of improper gerrymandering. According to a Trafalgar poll, businesses should just do business, not politics. Nearly nine in 10 American voters want corporations to stay out of politics, according to a poll released on Monday. The survey by the Trafalgar Group found that 87.1 percent of likely voters from all political affiliations said they were either very or somewhat likely to stop using a product or service of a company that openly advocates for a political agenda that contradicts their beliefs. The remaining 12.8 percent said they were either likely or not like not very likely to do so. Abbott and the uh, FDA have reached an agreement to reopen the Michigan baby formula factory in the coming weeks. In the coming weeks. From that story, on Monday evening, baby formula producer Abbott announced it had reached a deal with the Food and Drug Administration, laying out a path to reopen a factory in Sturgis, Michigan, that shut down amid recalls earlier this year, contributing to the current shortage. In a statement, the company confirmed that it has entered into a consent decree with the FDA in which the agency and company agree on the benchmarks required to resume production and ensure the facility meets safety guidelines. Abbott says once the FDA confirms the initial requirements for startup have been met, Abbott could restart the site within two weeks. From the time Abbott restarts the site, it will take six to eight weeks before product is available on the shelves. A California Superior Court declared the law requiring women on corporate boards unconstitutional. Governor Jerry Brown, former governor, knew the law was likely unenforceable when it instituted in 2018. National Review says a California judge struck down the 2018 state law requiring public companies to have female directors on their boards after finding the mandate violated the Equal Protection Clause of the state's constitution. The law required publicly held companies headquartered in California to have at least one member who identifies as a woman who identifies so she doesn't actually have to be a woman. She can just identify as a woman under the old rule on their board of directors by the end of 2019. It then required boards with five directors to have two women on boards with six or more to have three women by January of 2023. 
Former Fed Reserve Chair Bernanke on inflation, mistakes were made. The former Federal Reserve Chair said during a Monday interview with the central bank's uh, Delaying inflation response was a mistake. The Fed had dropped its benchmark interest rate to near zero levels at the outset of COVID-19 and the lockdown induced recession in a bid to stimulate economic activity. Over the past few months, however, the Fed began aggressively increasing rates in response to rampant inflation pressures. Uh, pressuring consumers. The question is, why did they delay that? Why did they delay their response? I think in retrospect, he went on to say, yes, it was a mistake. And I think they agree it was a mistake. McDonald's is closing all of its Russian locations. From the story, McDonald's became the symbol of Glasnost. Remember that? And the action some 30 years ago when it opened its first restaurant in Moscow. But after temporarily shutting down more than 800 restaurants following the invasion of Ukraine, McDonald's has decided to leave Russia altogether. The burger chain will sell its Russian businesses, saying the humiliation, or excuse me, the humanitarian crisis caused by the war in Ukraine and the precipitating, unpredictable operating environment have led McDonald's to conclude that continued ownership of the business in Russia is no longer tenable, nor is it consistent with McDonald's values. The new White House press secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre, says raising corporate taxes will help inflation. Fox News White House correspondent Peter Ducey read Jean-Pierre's uh, recent tweet from Biden's Twitter account, word for word, which stated, you want to bring down inflation? Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. That sort of vague term. The reporter followed that with a simple question. How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? Ducey went on to say, and it can be read in town hall. The president's Twitter account posted the other day, how does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? KJP. Um, so are you talking about a specific tweet? The RNC research weighed in. How does raising taxes on corporations lower the cost of gas, the cost of used cars, the cost of food for everyday Americans? Karen Jean-Pierre, climate change. Well, the Taliban has done away with the U.S. sponsored Human Rights Council in Afghanistan Taliban authorities in the country dissolved the five key departments of the former U.S.-backed government, including the country's Human Rights Commission, deeming them unnecessary in the face of a financial crunch. An official said Afghanistan faced a budget deficit of $44 billion. I guess it's Afghanis or $501 million this financial year, Taliban authorities said as they announced their first annual national budget Since taking over last August, because these departments were not deemed necessary, were not included in the budget, they have been dissolved, said the uh, Taliban government's deputy spokesperson. Well, Democrats have abandoned choice as a euphemism for abortion. House Democrats pro-abortion group that has long gone by the moniker pro-choice caucus has decided to abandon the term choice in reference to abortion. It now calls it harmful language and advocates instead for the word decision to be the new euphemism for abortion. The change in terminology is already underway as pro-abortion Democrats chanted my body, my decision following the Senate's uh, failed vote to codify and expand abortion as a constitutional right. Democrats are Old pros at the terminology game, which obfuscates their genuine political agenda. But Democrat strategist Liz Smith recently warned if this debate devolves into policing of terms like pro-choice, pro-life and safe and legal and rare, we will absolutely lose it. The great irony here is that the etymology of the word decide literally means to cut off, as in eliminating. 
Hillary Clinton supporters are hampering John Durham's jury selection. The selection for the uh, uh, prosecution of Hillary Clinton's former lawyer, Sussman, got underway on Monday, and it became clear that Durham will have a tough time convincing a jury that may be heavily biased toward the former Secretary of State. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Joel Rosenberg. His book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, Joel Rosenberg, has released his newest nonfiction book, The First in Several Years. Enemies and Allies is the title of the book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Well, it skillfully and clearly explains the importance of the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. It explores vital questions about the threats posed by radical and apocalyptic Islamism and the efforts to make peace in the Middle East 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. It examines the grave and growing Iranian threat and is the first book to explain the inside story of how the game-changing Abraham Accords came to pass. It includes exclusive, never-before-published interviews, insights, analysis from his conversations with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world. It is fascinating, as Rosenberg books always are. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times bestselling author of 15 novels, five nonfiction books, and nearly five million copies have been sold. He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. He and his wife live with their family in Jerusalem. He joins us today to talk about his latest enemies and allies. Joel Rosenberg, welcome back. Georgine, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely. Well, it's always a thrill when we hear a Rosenberg Rosenberg book has come out. And before the ink is dry, we're trying to arrange an interview. So I appreciate the time that you have taken to to join us here today. Um, We are in the... In the middle of a, an evacuation, if you will, from Afghanistan that has left many Americans in the uh, on the eve of the um, September 11th, 20th anniversary, wondering where we stand as a nation, what's likely to happen in the Middle East. Let's begin where your book begins in the first part, the threats that we have faced and may face in the future. What are the most serious threats that we face today in the Middle East, particularly given what's just happened in Afghanistan? Well, I hate to say this, Georgine, but, uh, but we better start with the, the, the central threat here, and that's President Joe Biden. And by that, I mean the threat in the Middle East that, that, that we have to fear and we have to deal with is radical Islamism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, the worst thing that you can do in the central theme of enemies and allies is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it, right? We were blindsided by Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We were blindsided by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda 20 years ago, uh, Saturday. But we all as Americans have been blindsided now by a president who has surrendered uh, to a radical Islamist terror regime that we spent 20 years 
almost 2,500 American courageous men and women fighting at almost $2 trillion. And the country was stable. So the, Afghanistan had been won. Now, to be, it's Afghanistan. I've been there. I've spent time with the tribal Muslim leaders there. I've spent time with Afghan Christians on the ground there. It's not Paris. You know, it's not like liberating Paris from the Nazis. And then you're like sitting at a cafe saying, oh, this is lovely. This is Paris. It's Afghanistan. I get it. It's not pretty. But it was stable. American soldiers and people were not dying. And, and the, the President Biden walked in, pulled out the critical Jenga stick, and the whole thing has collapsed. On the 9/11. Now, when you have someone who completely doesn't get it uh, in the White House, this is incredibly dangerous because while the Taliban is bad, if, if Biden can't deal with the Taliban, how is he going to deal with the nuclear apocalyptic tyrants that are in Tehran? That's what terrifies me, um, and I. I can't say I'm surprised, but I'm horrified and angered and, I, I, you know, oh, my God, we have a president who, who just surrendered a $2 trillion, 2,500 soldier and Marine investment. Yep. What in the world is he doing? Leaving our equipment behind and our people behind as well. Now, you made reference to Iran and uh, Iran is, a, is, is an existential threat, not just to the United States, not just to Israel, but among Muslim nations with whom uh, leaders you have met, uh, talk a bit about Iran and the role that they are playing in destabilizing the region, while at the same time uh, contributing to some of the, the Arab and Muslim nations seeking peace. Well, that's right. And what Enemies and Allies does I, is I, I take you inside the palaces and the presidential compounds in the most powerful uh, American allied countries in the Middle East, obviously Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Ruby Rivlin, but also the Saudi leaders, the Bahraini leaders, the Emirati leaders, the Jordanian leaders, the uh, Egyptian leaders at the top, like kings, crown princes, presidents and prime ministers. And I asked them, what do you think about Iran? Let me give you, and they, and they spoke to me on the record. This is the only book of its kind. There's not a single book out there where an author could spend hours and hours and hours with the main leaders in our alliance. And all of them made it clear that they worry that American leaders, not all of them, but, but, but many, don't understand the threat from Iran. Uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, said the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. Now, you would expect that from me. <laughs> You'd expect that from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But Saudi Arabia is, you know, the fountainhead of Mecca and Medina. It's the, they're the caretakers, the custodians of Islam in the world. They, you know, uh, on 9-11, 20 years ago, Osama bin Laden, a Saudi. 15 of the 19 hijackers, Saudi. So here's the head of Saudi Arabia telling me, a Jewish evangelical Israeli sitting in the palace, on the record, that Iran is so dangerous and it's being led by the new Hitler. It gives you a sense, I totally agree with him, by the way, and this is, and to summarize it in one phrase, what I fear, what, uh, sorry, uh, Netanyahu fears, what MBS fears, what everybody fears is a nuclear 9-11. Hmm. And God forbid Biden get blindsided by that. Hmm. Talk a little bit about the Russian-Iranian axis and the potential of Turkey joining that alliance. 
Well, this is interesting, right? Because so for the last 20 years, there's always been the risk that Iran was going to get nuclear weapons, right? But and so a lot of people say, like, Joel, haven't you said every now and then or quoted people say, you know, they're just a few years away. That's true. Why haven't they gotten it? Why hasn't Iran gotten the bomb yet? Well, because bad things seem to happen to their nuclear scientists. You know, they don't they just disappear or they die mysteriously. Like, Georgine, I don't think I recommend that you go into the life insurance business in Iran if you're trying to sell policies to the Iranian nuclear scientists because they just don't last that long. Uh, Their equipment blows up. Their computers malfunction. What's happening? Uh, United States, Israel, the Arab countries are secretly sabotaging and perhaps even assassinating a, a lot of these leaders. That's what slowed this down. I say that as the prelude to your question, because what's happened is, and I describe this in great detail mm-hmm. in the first section of Enemies and Allies, what Iran has done has decided we need to build alliances with America's worst enemies. Uh, Russia, a nuclear power. China, a nuclear armed power. North Korea, a nuclear armed power. Turkey, which is not exactly a nuclear armed power, but has the largest military in Europe. And that's what is happening. Iran is building these close ties with people they totally disagree with ideologically, politically, and have had huge conflicts with with historically. But they all hate America. They all hate the West, and they're all banding together in an incredibly dangerous alliance. And that's something that I, I don't see people talking about. They talk about Iran almost as though Iran's operating by itself. Mm-hmm. But it's Putin, Vladimir Putin in Moscow, that's selling Iran nuclear technology that has sent Russian nuclear scientists to work in Iran's uh, illegal nuclear industry. Uh, It's Putin who's selling advanced weapon systems to Iran and running political interference at the U.N. for Iran. So Iran's just not trying to do this by itself. It has major players on its team And we need to wake up and understand what's going on. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Some fascinating conversations he has had with world leaders. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest book just released, Enemies and Allies. Now, we know what happens in the Middle East, for better or for worse, affects the entire world. Rosenberg, in his book, says uh, that he takes you inside the royal courts and capitals and introduces you, the reader, to the most powerful figures in the region. In the second half of your book, The Opportunities, you share some of the encounters you have had with the Saudi Crown Prince, with the United Arab Emirates Crown Prince, with Egyptian President Abdul, with President Donald Trump, Jordan's King Abdullah, with uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, the U.S. Secretary of State, former CIA Director, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and more. This is really an, an amazing list of who's who. Can you kind of walk us through how these encounters, I mean, you're an evangelical uh, man with a Jewish background, how these encounters began. I think it started with the um, uh, the Prince uh, Abdullah, Jordan's uh, King Abdullah. Yeah, that's right, Georgie. And you remember from a number of years ago, I had written 
a, a trilogy of novels in which ISIS, the, the terror group, uh, captures chemical, chemical weapons in Syria and that then starts planning attacks against the United States, against Israel, and against Jordan. And in the course of those three novels, uh, uh, ISIS plots the assassination and tries to assassinate uh, King Abdullah of Jordan and blow up his palace and take over his kingdom. Now, what I did was, he, he, King Abdullah is such a fascinating figure. He was the former head of special forces. He was a commando. He never planned to be a king. Uh, but he, he, he wanted to be in the military his whole life. His uncle was the crown prince. But at the last minute, his father, King Hussein, made Abdullah the, the, the crown prince, and he became the king when the, when the king died. So what happened? I made him a character by name in my series. Now, that's not the brightest move, perhaps, <laughs> Georgine, if you, if you live across the river from a man who, you know, you're, you're, in the novel, people are trying to kill him, and they're blowing up his palace. Now, what happened is one of his advisors read the book, one of the books, and, and then gave it to the king and said, Your Majesty, you have to read this. And he said, why? He said, because you're in it. He said, what do you mean I'm in it? It looks like a novel, a political thriller. He goes, yeah, but you're a character in the book. He's like, what? So he takes two days and he reads the entire novel. And rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, <laughs> which he really could have done, he invited my wife and me to come for five days to get to know him and his inner circle. And I tell this story in the book. It's so fascinating. We, when, we, when we had lunch with him, we had lunch, we had dinner, we, we went to a military training exercise with him. He put us in his own helicopter and sent us all over the country to meet people and learn things. But when we had our first lunch with him, he said, you know, Joel, I was wondering where it would be fun to meet you for the first time. And I thought when I got up this morning, you know, he did blow up my palace in his book. Maybe I should bring him to the palace. And uh, you could see, I said, well, it is lovely, your majesty. And, and he said, I see that you made me a character, but my staff, you fictionalized their names, but I can see who's who. So I bought copies of your book, Joel, and I've given them to my staff. And I'll, I'll say to somebody, hey, you're, this is you on page 47. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. You might want to read that. And just a very funny Interesting, moderate Muslim monarch. What in the world am I doing there? But it was a novel that actually that piqued his interest, invited me in, and I said, hey, would you be interested in meeting other American evangelical leaders who love Israel, but, would, but they need to understand the perspective that you have? And he said, Let, he said, let's put together a delegation together, and I'll welcome them here into Jordan. And that's what we did, and I... I ended up leading six of those types of delegations to all these different countries at their invitations. And it was absolutely fascinating. And in Enemies and Allies, I, I tell those stories. Yeah, and it really is fascinating, first of all, how you got there, how you gained an audience with these uh, these individuals who would not, one would assume, be inclined to meet with you and right. then <laughs> to meet with other evangelical leaders. Among those um, uh, presidents and and dignitaries that you met with um meeting with the uh with the um oh, I'm, I'm my mind is gone blank um you're probably thinking of the saudi crown prince thank you that is exactly what i'm thinking <laughs> mbs mohammed bin salman yes yeah. talk well, a little bit about that how that came about and 
really kind of the the prelude to uh, the the notion of peace with Israel came up long before it was a popularized subject across the globe. Well, that's right, because because I actually have to start slightly back before that, because we went to the United Arab Emirates and we were the first Christian delegation ever to be invited to meet with the crown prince there, whose name is Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ. And in the course of our conversation with him for two hours, you know, it wasn't a five minute photo op or a cup of coffee. It was two hours together with him. And he's, and I said to him, listen, you need to understand something about evangelicals. We love Israel. You can't shake us on that because, you know, because the UAE didn't have a peace treaty at that point with Israel. I said, we, we love Israel theologically. It's, it's in our theological, biblical DNA. So it's not political. So you just need to know that. Now, the second thing you need to know is that Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. So we, we do love our neighbors, and we don't have an exact plan how to make peace with the Palestinians, but, but we want you to know it's not a zero-sum game. And third, we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we're looking. It's been a long time since an Arab leader made peace with Israel. Who's going to be next? And he, MBZ, leaned forward and said, it's going to be me, Joel. Hmm. I'm ready. We said, what? And so we ended up having this fascinating conversation. Now, that conversation at the time was off the record. So we had this huge headline, United Arab Emirates is going to make peace, but we couldn't come out and say it. And we kept our word to him. And, and last August, a year ago August, sure enough, MBZ, uh, working with Netanyahu and President Trump, announced that he was making peace with Israel. And I was at that signing ceremony at the White House on September 15th of last year. And so that set into motion us going to Saudi Arabia, where the Saudis are not yet ready to make peace with Israel. But I think they're actually weighing it. And you look at their actions, they didn't, they didn't put the kibosh on for countries making peace with Israel last year. They could have, right? They could have thrown sand in the eyes, you know, throw a monkey wrench into the system. They didn't. In fact, they publicly praised these four countries. What's more, they're allowing Israeli planes to fly over Saudi Arabia for the first time in history mm-hmm. to get to the United Arab Emirates. And third, Crown Prince MBS, with whom I had not just one meeting, but on two trips, he invited me, hours and hours with him, and even more hours with his inner circle. He had a, a secret meeting last December with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, Israel's uh, Secret Services spy chief, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I can't tell you the details of that trip, but I can tell you that these signs are public and slightly private evidences that the Saudis are moving. They're moving towards seeing Israel not as an enemy, but as an ally. And I'm telling you, these are game-changing developments in the Middle East. Oh, absolutely. And this is the only book that tells the story. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what role would you say Iran plays in that decision to consider or, or at least move in the direction of uh, considering peace with Israel? Is it fear of Iran? Is it a recognition that peace is in their best interest? What's the combination of things that, that would lead um, this leader to consider reconciling to some degree uh, with what had been their enemy? That's a great question, Georgine, and I do, I do deal with that um, at length and I, in the book. And, I, and I'll just say this. 
I think there are multiple factors. First, um, you know, MBS, just like these other leaders, they're much younger. They used to be mm-hmm. Arab leaders, you know, or, or like Soviet leaders. You know, they're in their 80s or whatever, and they're, they're just from a different era. MBS is young. He's trying to change his country's economy and society. He wants women to drive. He wants them, people to go to the movie theaters. He's open. There haven't been movie theaters in Saudi Arabia in 50 years. So he's making all these social changes. He wants to be a country where you'd want to come visit. You'd want to come and to invest. So there's partly that dynamic. He wants to be a Muslim who likes Christians and Jews and welcomes them to the palace and welcomes them to the kingdom. So that's real good, and it's never happened before. But the larger issue, as you say, is Iran. Ultimately, Saudi Arabia has to figure out what the others are deciding, which is, is Israel an enemy, like we've thought for the last hundred years, or are they an ally? And as President Biden retreats and abandons the Middle East, um, then the question is, if America's not going to be here to help us against Iran, maybe we need to, maybe the Arab world needs to join forces with the one country that has the will, the, the, the motive, and the means to defend themselves, ourselves, as Israelis against this Iranian nuclear threat, because Iran could, if they get the bomb, create a second Holocaust. And so I think the Saudis are actively weighing this. Could I tell you when they're going to make their decision? I can't, but I'm praying for peace and I'm watching very closely. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, another must-read, very timely book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. We need to take a break for a news and traffic at the top of the hour, but we'll be back with more Joel Rosenberg. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back. Joel Rosenberg is my guest. He has written a book, Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction and unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's based in Jerusalem. He skillfully and clearly explains the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. Uh, he continues the conversation we began in the first hour of today's program. This is such a fascinating book. And as we are just days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11, as you talk about Saudi Arabia, there are questions being raised about the role they played in uh, 9-11 uh, 20 years ago. In fact, um, uh, 9-11 families have asked the president not to attend events over the weekend uh, until it's made clear what role the Saudis played in all of that. Your thoughts on uh, the role that they might have played there and where they stand 20 years hence? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, Georgina, I have not seen any solid evidence that the, the Saudi government has actively or even passively played a role in, in planning and orchestrating and assisting and aiding and abetting al-Qaeda in any of that uh, attack. Um, and just the opposite, I think you'd have to say, you know, the Saudis, uh, you know, we were their biggest purchaser of oil. And so it would be not clear why the Saudi government would send, encourage, assist uh, terrorists to go blow up their number one economic partner and ally 
And don't forget, it was U.S. forces who, you know, uh, saved Saudi Arabia when Saddam Hussein was invading Kuwait and was getting ready to invade Saudi Arabia. We sent a half million soldiers to the region, and, and many of them were based in Saudi Arabia, to protect Saudi Arabia. So just to be clear, there's, there, did they have the means to do it? Yes. Did they have the motive to do it? No, they did not. Now, that being said, uh, what Saudi Arabia's government was guilty of was allowing a, 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 a climate to fester in the mosques, in the schools of hatred for Jews, hatred for Israel, um, a deep-seated negativity towards the West, even towards America. You know, so the government was pro-American, but there was a, but, but violent or let's, let's say at least extremist Wahhabi Islam was being taught in the schools and in the mosques, and the Saudis didn't crush that, didn't deal with that. Now, Mohammed bin Salman is doing that now. He's fired more than 3,000 clerics who are extremists and won't change. He's changing the textbooks to get rid of the anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, anti-Western language, which is super important. Um, He's welcoming Christians and Jews into the kingdom. So I think there's a sea change of positive reform going on. But believe me, Saudi Arabia has a long way to go. I don't want to you know, paint too rosy a picture, mm-hmm. but it's the most significant change in the history of Saudi Arabia, and it's going in the right direction. I think we should encourage it, um, not um, castigate it and isolate it like President Biden, who has called Saudi Arabia a pariah state, even though he's dealing with Iran, whose president is on our U.S. sanctions list for murdering 30,000 Iranians. So what in the world is going on here? Yeah, it's a good question. Now, we sort of alluded to this in our conversation earlier uh, on the program, but let's talk about the Abraham Accords. At the time uh, it, it took place, um, the media here in the U.S. was loath to give uh, President Trump any credit for a role that he might have played in all of that. Uh, there have been uh, there had been talk of a Nobel Peace Prize, although it's unlikely because he's Donald Trump that that uh, would have taken place. Talk a little bit about the Arab Accords and whether or not it was a big deal or not. The Abraham Accords is they are a huge deal, and not only President Trump, but um, his team and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and UAE uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who, as I told you, told me two years before he did it that he was going to do it, mm-hmm. and he did it, and the Bahrainis and the Sudanese and the Americans. Look, they all deserve Nobel Peace Prizes. This is, we haven't seen an Arab-Israeli peace treaty since 1994. Some of your listeners weren't even born when the last peace treaty was. That was between Jordan and Israel. And before that, you have to go back to 1979 between Egypt and Israel. That takes another swath of your, your, your radio listeners like, okay, I wasn't born then either. So... <laughs> What I'm saying is this is a big deal, and it came from a, an American president who – even I, I, I was a never-Trumper in 2016, and I, I, I admit that in the book. And In fact, I told the president that when I met with him to talk to him about these issues in the Oval Office. But I told President Trump, look, I, I was very critical of you because I didn't trust you. I didn't believe you. I didn't think you could make these changes, and you are doing it, and it's huge. And – you know, for all the naysayers, right? President Biden 
says, hey, I got 50 years of experience. And Trump has none. Okay, but but Trump got four Arab Israeli peace treaties done, and nobody thought he could do it. And Biden has surrendered to a radical Islamist terrorist group that was living in the caves last month. So does experience matter or wisdom and judgment? Yeah, we'll leave that a rhetorical question, but I think we know uh, what the answer is. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I have still criticisms of Trump's the yes. way he would speak or his tweets or, you know, even some of the policies, including, let's, let's be honest, President Trump wanted to get all of U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. But to, so so I disagreed with that and I was public about my disagreement. But here's the difference. Trump listened to his advisors. He listened to his generals who said, Mr. President, we can we can dial down the number of forces. But let's be honest, the situation would it's like pulling out a Jenga stick. You'll collapse the system if you move too fast and if the Afghanis are not ready. They're more ready than they were a few years ago, but it's still, it's still sensitive. So don't go too fast. Trump listened. Biden didn't. And I, and I think what you're watching with President Biden is he's so sure that he has all this 50 years of experience and that he's right. But what you have is... Ignorance of radical Islamism, incompetent in foreign policy, matched with hubris. That's a very dangerous combination. And in Enemies and Allies, I note that there are a number of good, really good things that Biden has done over the years in foreign policy, even in the Middle East. But most of his instincts have been wrong. Mm -hmm. Biden was against President Obama sending special forces into Pakistan to kill Osama bin Laden. Even Hillary, I point out in the book, supported that that hit on bin Laden. Biden was against it. Biden supported and, in fact, advocated for the complete removal of all U.S. military forces from Iraq in 2011. Most of the cabinet was against it, or at least the major ones, Panetta, uh, Bob Gates, but Biden prevailed, and, and, and uh, Obama put Biden in charge of that um, evacuation. What happened in 2011? Well, we all, U.S. forces left. It created a vacuum. Al-Qaeda in Iraq morphed into something worse, ISIS, and began a genocidal campaign that took us almost 10 years to eradicate. But this is not Biden making it up as he goes along. He believes he's doing the right thing, and that's what makes him even more dangerous. Mm. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Absolutely fascinating. We've talked a lot about some of the um, incredible leaders that you have met uh, in the Middle East, but you also took delegates, uh, delegations of evangelical leaders with you. Talk a bit about um, about that. First of all, the welcome they received and what the purpose of those meetings were. Happy to do that, uh, Georgine. This was fascinating because most of these Arab leaders, most of these countries, they had never invited evangelical Christians to meet with them ever. And, um, and 
they asked me to do this. I, I wanted to do it. And usually it would be between 10 and 12 of us that would go in, you know, enough that um, you get sort of a cross section. I mean, American evangelicalism, you know, in 60 million people. So it's hard to, to, um, to do a good job with just 12 people. Um, but I tried to get people, you know, men and women, people from different um, theological, uh, you know, sectors, um, different races, you know, people with different angles to understand what was going on, who would ask really good questions that would really open up conversations. We went primarily to deal with religious freedom issues, you know, with Saudi Arabia, the crown prince. We said, you know, with, with all due respect, you know, you don't have a single church building that operates on Saudi soil. Like, you know, we just came from the United Arab Emirates. They have 700 freely operating churches. In Egypt, President el-Sisi, a devout Muslim, has built the largest church building in the history of the Middle East. And he asked us to come, and we were there when he gave it to the 17 million Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve, like, as a present. Like, why don't you have any churches in Saudi Arabia, and can we work on changing that? You know, so we got to have those type of conversations in Saudi Arabia. They told us there hasn't been a Christian delegation invited to the palace to meet the top leadership in the entire 300 years since the Saud family has been in power. Like, that's just an amazing thing Mm -hmm. that we got to do it. So we were advancing religious freedom, advancing human rights. Um, We were advocating, of course, for peace with Israel. And we wanted to understand how they were changing their textbooks and how they were changing, you know, how they were fighting radical extremism. And and every country had a slightly different flavor. We focused on slightly different topics, but but overall, no Christian has ever gotten to do it. And we were just totally blessed by God. I, I can't explain really, except for we prayed for these open doors, and God said yes. But I, there's no reason why a Joel Rosenberg, Jewish, evangelical, American, Israeli, I'm not a billionaire. I don't have a huge political movement behind me. I... I you know, and at one level, you'd say, well, what, what did they see out of this? What, what was in it for them? Well, honestly, they are trying to reach out to the American people, and they're trying to show the American people that they're not the Arab leaders of 20 years ago, that they've made huge changes. Now, honestly, Georgine, there is a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And we've told them respectfully, but directly, Listen, you're not doing good in this, this, in this areas, and I say these things honestly in the book. Like I'm not going to pull my punches, but I'll do it respectfully because I want to engage them. But but I'm not satisfied with the reforms they've made. But I I am I do praise the ones that are good, and there are so many that are good that most Americans don't know. Twenty years ago, we were all saying, "Hey, where are the Muslims?" We're saying, "What the heck? You know why why aren't Muslims standing up and fighting against?" these radicals. And today there's a lot of leaders who are doing just that and their stories need to be told. And then we need to keep pressing them for more change. We're talking with uh, Joel Rosenberg. His book is titled Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction. Just fascinating uh, what God is doing in that region and how he has used him and other evangelicals uh, to connect with uh, leaders in the Middle East. What do you see in terms of the future of peace in the Middle East? I'm reminded of the scripture that says, you know, peace, peace. And then, 
you know, all hell literally breaks loose. What do you see it, with in the short term and perhaps the long term, uh, the future of peace in the Middle East? Well, the Bible certainly describes in Daniel chapter 9 that there will be a deceptive, even demonic peace that will lure Israel into thinking that this is a good thing, but in fact, it'll be a trap. But, the, but Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? King David told, commanded us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes. Paul told us to, you know, as long as it depends on us, make peace with all men. So when we pray for peace and we advocate for peace, and then Arab-Israeli peace happened, let's not be cynical and say, well, that's, that's the Antichrist doing it. I'm like, we're not, we're not there yet. And, and it's almost like praying for Peter to be released from prison. And when he knocks on the front door, like, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not really Peter. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, if, if God answers our prayers and advances peace and security, we should be grateful and realize this doesn't happen easily. God is moving and attitudes are changing. I'm not saying it's perfect. This book, Enemies and Allies, talks about how dangerous a moment it is because Iran is getting closer and closer to, to the bomb. But some really good things are happening, and we don't have time to get all into all of it. There's, there's more religious freedom in the region for Christians than ever in human history, and I would say that we're also seeing more Muslims and Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in human history. I mean, there's some extraordinary things, but you're not going to hear this on the NBC Nightly News. You're not going to see this um, on the front page of the Washington Post or even probably um, the, the Portland Press or what's the, I'm not sure what the local paper is. But, you know, it's unlikely that in Seattle and Portland and some of our mm-hmm. friends up with you all up in the Northwest, that they are watching for this or caring about it, but we need to care. And why do we need to care what's happening in the Middle East? Because it's not Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) But what happens in the Middle East, as we've just seen in the last few days and weeks, it affects us all. It affects our sons and daughters who serve in the military. It affects our gas prices. It affects our budgets when we have to spend $2 trillion to go defend ourselves. Like, this stuff matters, and this is the only book that gives you an update right now. What's happening and who's who in the, in, in the theater uh, of operations there? Let me take you inside the palaces and have the most interesting on-the-record conversations that a normal person like you and me is ever going to get. Yeah, it really is fascinating. I don't know how you manage to do it every time, but it really is uh, fascinating. And I would encourage our listeners to to read the book, Enemies and Allies. Our brief conversation cannot um, provide all of the detailed information that you place in the book. Now, when your readers finish the book, what do you hope they ultimately come away with? Well, uh, first of all, with a... a, a a clear sense of, of why the Middle East matters and, and what we should be supporting. Like, you know, regardless of which party you're in, you know, we need Democrats to be pressing Biden and saying, look, we want Biden to succeed. I Look, me, Joel, a Republican, I want Biden to succeed. I, I'm not a cynic. I'm a critic, okay? I'm critical of what the president's doing, just as I was critical at times of what Trump did. I want Biden to change. We Democrats need to press 
Biden to, you know, to not go down the road of appeasing Iran, but instead strengthen our alliances with Israel and the Arab world, help the Saudis make peace. This is, these are good things, and they should be bipartisan. So yes. that's the main thing. And then for Christians, I encourage, and I explain it in the book, I would encourage you to not just, not just pray, but financially give to Christian ministries who are embattled um, on the ground in the region. My organization, the Joshua Fund, has raised more than $80 million over the last 15 years to strengthen our brothers and sisters on the ground. And that's one way that my wife and I and our team try to do something practical, not just to educate people, but to mobilize them to make an actual specific and tangible difference. Well, I am so grateful for your writing, but also grateful for the work that you do and the challenge that you pose to to Christians who really do care and want to do something constructive. Joel Rosenberg, thank you so much. Oh, such an honor, Georgina. I love being with you. I, I wish it was in person next year. Yeah. Portland. Let's let's do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Once again, Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies. The book is published by Tyndale House. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, three Trump candidates are in trouble in today's primary, which is a reminder that you have until uh, today to mail your ballots or to drop them off. Uh, The new rule is that if your ballot is postmarked Election Day, it will be counted. A court-drawn House map could devastate Democrat chances in the midterms, and a federal court halts mandates forcing religious employers to pay for and perform irreversible trans surgeries. Abortion advocates have officially started the Summer of Rage Something to look forward to. April migrant encounters hit a record high as President Biden looks to end Title 42 next week while he's out of town. President Biden reversed another Trump policy, sending U.S. troops to Somalia. Saudi oil profits skyrocket as the president cuts U.S. oil production. And Florida outlaws protests in in front of uh, private homes. Um, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill Monday night prohibiting people from picketing or protesting outside the private residences in that state. The bill, House Bill 1571, which will allow law enforcement to issue warnings to people picketing or protesting, comes in response to recent abortion rights uh, protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices in Virginia and in Maryland. Half of infants in the U.S. are on federal food assistance And Woke Disney is in a full-blown public relations fiasco. Longtime Elon Musk backers say that the Twitter deal will close, but at a lower price. The long-term investor uh, predicts that the mogul's Twitter takeover bid will close, but not until the Tesla Titan negotiates a lower price. Tim Draper, an early investor in Tesla and SpaceX, who co-founded a venture capital firm that's sinking $100 million into Musk's Twitter bid, was asked Monday whether he thought Musk would successfully close the deal. I think so, Draper responded, but I think he's going to get a better deal because he found out that whatever two-thirds of users are bots or something. While Twitter officially accepted a $44 billion offer from Musk in April, the Tesla CEO has since pumped the brakes on his takeover bid over alleged concerns related to fake accounts and spam. Musk had offered $54.20 a share, but the stock's... um, 
Stock was traded at almost $37 on Monday. On Friday, Musk said the deal was temporarily on hold, pending details supporting calculation that spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users before insisting hours later that he was still committed to the buyout. buyout rather. Then on Monday, Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal, he posted a thread about steps the company is taking to measure and take down bots. Musk then responded with a smiling poop emoji. Some analysts have speculated that Musk is using the spam issue as a negotiating tactic, and rightfully so, while others say he's gotten cold feet and is looking for a way to get out of the deal altogether. But the investor, Tim Draper, he predicted that Musk will negotiate a lower price to Twitter, sports file for Web Summit via Guy. Tony Spell, the first pastor to publicly defy COVID-19 lockdown orders, has won his legal battle against the state of Louisiana some two years. Hence, when the state Supreme Court decided five to two on Friday that the governor did not have a good reason to block Spell's oneness Pentecostal church from meeting for worship while other venues received exemptions from public health restrictions. A 2020 executive order in the Bayou State prohibited gatherings of more than 50 and a subsequent order limiting groups to 10 followed uh, following the advice of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention early in the pandemic. Both orders carved out exceptions, however, for airports, grocery stores, factories, office buildings and other meetings deemed essential. It is a violation of the First Amendment guarantee of freedom of religion to offer legal exemptions to secular groups and not religious ones, the Louisiana court found. According to Justice William Crane, it was also kind of absurd. An unlimited number of people were allowed to remain in a single conference room in an office building for an unlimited period of time, all in close proximity, talking, eating and engaging in any other normal operations of the business, he wrote. However, in 10 of those individuals left the conference room, walked across the street to a church and entered an otherwise empty sanctuary building for a worship service. They were subject to criminal prosecution. Well, Judge Crane said the government had a legitimate interest in stopping the spread of the coronavirus, but couldn't unfairly disadvantage religious groups. We interpret Pastor Spell's request not as one of special treatment, he concluded, but for equal treatment. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards will not appeal the ruling. The U.S. Supreme Court has already sided with religious groups filing similar objections to pandemic restrictions in California and New York. In Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, the justices um, went so far as to say that the uneven COVID-19 rules strike at the very heart of the First Amendment guarantees of religious liberty. Edward uh, disagrees with the Louisiana court's decision according to an official statement, but he is accepting of it. Well, state prosecutors were not especially aggressive in pressing the case against Spell. They presented no witnesses and offered little evidence beyond the executive orders that the pastor and his lawyers argued were unconstitutional. The state offered Spell a plea deal in March, offering to drop five of the charges if he pled no contest to the sixth. Well, the pastor who leads Life Tabernacle Church in Baton Rouge was defiant from the beginning right through to the end. I'm guilty of having church, Spell told his congregation in 2020. I'm guilty of preaching. I'm guilty of praying. But I am not guilty of breaking any law. I am not guilty. The only thing that I'm guilty of doing, uh, uh, guilty of, is doing what the Bible told me to do. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together.
Well, Spell also promoted baseless conspiracy theories about the virus, alleging without evidence that it was a scam to help Joe Biden steal the presidential election. He discouraged his congregation from getting COVID vaccines, despite the fact that scientific trials showed uh, they were effective. And that may have gotten in the craw of uh, lawmakers there as well. One member of the church told local media he believed the vaccine was part of an attempt to kill Christian conservatives. It starts going into conspiracy theory type stuff, he admitted. But I do. I believe it's Bill Gates and them trying to kill us. Well, Bill Gates had nothing to do with it, but people did die in Louisiana. According to state data, COVID-19 killed more than 17,000 in the state, including 1,300 in the parish in which Spells Pentecostal Church is located. At least one of them belonged to the church, Harold uh, Aurelion, a 78-year-old military veteran, died in April of last year. The coroner report said acute respiratory distress syndrome, second pneumonia, third COVID-19. In church on Sunday, Spell acknowledged that the last two years have been a challenge for him in the church, but he said God used it for good. Spell said he even saw God at work in the uh, date of the decision, pointing out that Friday the 13th has often been associated with evil. Well, devil, you just got dethroned and unseated because this is a day that is not infamous, but this is a day that now we'll say the Lord has made. Spell preached Uh, Because the Lord allowed us to enter into this battle 27 months ago, because the more we were afflicted, the more we multiplied and grew, the more the devil attacked us, the more miracles were performed in this sanctuary. There's been a precedent setting case that will from generation upon generation upon generation be quoted. Most likely it'll be forgotten by the end of the week, but nonetheless, it's a nice thought. On this day in history, 1792, the New York Stock Exchange has its beginning as a group of brokers met under a tree in Wall Street and signed the Buttonwood Agreement. 1946, President Harry S. Truman seizes control of the nation's railroads, delaying but not preventing a threatened strike by engineers and trainmen. 1954, a unanimous Supreme Court hands down its Brown versus Board of Education Topeka decision, which held that racially segregated public schools were inherently unequal and therefore unconstitutional. 1973, a special committee convened by the U.S. Senate begins its televised hearings into the Watergate scandal. 1996, President Bill Clinton signs Megan's Law, a measure requiring neighborhood notification when sex offenders move in. 2004, Massachusetts becomes the first state to allow same-sex marriage. 2017, the Justice Department appoints former FBI Director Robert Mueller as a special counsel to oversee a federal investigation into potential collusion between Russia and the 2016 Donald Trump campaign. 2017, Private Chelsea Manning, the soldier who was sentenced to 35 years in a military prison for giving classified materials to WikiLeaks, walks free after serving seven years behind bars, his sentence having been commuted by President Barack Obama in January of the same year. 2018, with six Democrats joining Republicans and voting to confirm her, Gina Haspel wins Senate confirmation to become the director of the CIA. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Grumpy Cat, feline Internet legend known for her permanent scowl, dies at age seven. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a new study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University has found that just 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. 
demonstrating that spiritual awakening is needed just as desperately in our pulpits as in the pews, according to the pollster. Well, the nationwide study of about 1,000 Christian pastors, so this is a very small sample, found that just slightly more than a third or 37 percent of the U.S. pastors hold the biblical worldview. The majority, 62 percent, possessed a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. The study was released on Thursday, showed that 41 percent of senior pastors, as compared to 28 percent of associate pastors, have a biblical worldview. Further, only 13 percent of teaching pastors and 12 percent of children's and youth pastors have a biblical worldview. The lowest level of uh, biblical worldview was among executive pastors, with only 4% of them holding consistently biblical beliefs and behaviors. Now, the research included 54 worldview-related questions, and it found that only 47% of pastors have a biblical worldview regarding family and value, the value of life. 44% concerning issues related to God, creation, and history. 43% in relation to personal faith practices. 43% when it comes to matters of sin, salvation, and one's relationship with God. 40% pertaining to human character and human nature. And 40% when it comes to measures of lifestyle, personal behavior, and relationships. The study, however, noted that not having a biblical worldview doesn't mean adherence to a competing worldview, such as secular humanism or Marxism. In fact, fewer than 1% of the pastors embody a worldview other than biblical theism. Researchers said instead, their prevailing worldview is best described as syncretism, a blending of ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. More than six out of 10 pastors or 62 percent have a predominantly syncretistic worldview. Well, George Barna, who's the director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, said that a person's worldview primarily develops before the age of 13, then goes through a period of refinement during their teens and 20s. From a worldview perspective, a church's most important ministers are the children's pastors and the youth pastors, he said, discovering that seven out of um, Every eight of those pastors lack a biblical worldview helps to explain why so few people in the nation's youngest generation are developing a heart and mind for biblical principles and a biblical way of life and why our society seems to have run wild over the last decade in particular, end quote. Well, in conclusion, Barna said God is in the transformation business. Pastors who are willing to allow him to transform their thinking and behavior can emerge from that process as a powerful example of what can happen when one's heart, mind, and soul are surrendered to God. It certainly seems that if America is going to experience a spiritual revival, that awakening is needed just as desperately in our pulpits as in the pews. Well, another study released by Barna Group last month showed that more pastors now say they considered quitting their jobs compared to a year ago, driven to despair by stress, loneliness, political divisions, and other worries like their church being in decline. The share of pastors who have seriously considered quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year increased from 29% in 2021 to 42% in March of this year. Michael Yosef, pastor of the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta, Georgia, recently urged pastors to stand firm on biblical truth as many churches are capitulating to woke theology in an effort to seem inclusive and seeker-friendly. The Apostle Paul tells us we're going to see young people fall by the wayside, But don't give up on the gospel. Don't compromise the truth. The 73-year-old Egyptian-American pastor sold Christian Post. 
We're seeing deconstruction, pastors watering down the gospel and other things going on. I realize this is a time for me at the age of 73 to leave a legacy to the younger generation as pastors and of pastors. And it's not really my legacy. It's the word of God. It's the Apostle Paul's legacy. Well, to discern when a pastor is a false teacher who promotes a watered down theology versus a biblical sound one who holds to the ancient truths found in the scriptures, Yosef urged churchgoers to ask Do they lift up Jesus and the cross of Christ as the only hope for salvation, eternal life, and calling men to repent and women to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord? Or do they simply preach affirmations? And of course, uh, spending time in the word oneself to know what the scriptures teach will also help discern between right and wrong, a biblical worldview, biblical teaching, and that of us syncretism as described in the survey. Now, this was a relatively small sample. As I mentioned a few moments ago, it only involved involved 1,000 Christian pastors. So that is a very small sampling. One would hope that if a broader sampling were taken, that the numbers would be quite different. I'd like to think that, but I'm not so sure that would be the case. Um, In any event, we need to encourage our pastors. We need to hold them to a high standard in biblical teaching and uh, ask God to intervene in uh, areas where we fall short. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.